How is everybody? Okay, so, no, don't awe me. Come on. So my, my voice is struggling today. I don't, I don't feel bad. I just sound really, really bad. So uh, drink some eggnog. I will drink some eggnog today. Um, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, I will not look good if I continue to drink as much eggnog as I've been drinking. So um, glad you guys are here today. I'm, I'm, again, my voice, it'll, it'll, it'll get a little bit better as a, the, the more I talk. But uh, we're in the book of Revelation, and um, we've been working through it. For some time, again, I'm sorry how soft I'm going to have to speak today, but they turned me up a little bit, so that, that'll kind of make up for it. But uh, we have a lot of ground to cover, um, so this is fun. So combine the fact that my voice is messed up, took a bunch of medicine this morning, and run the most complicated chapter we've done so far, all mixed up together just makes a really interesting church service, right? So I'm a little loopy right now, so everything's going to be fantastic. If it doesn't make sense, it's not the Bible's fault. It's completely mine. I, I take all that credit, so... Anyways, we've been working through Revelation for a while. We're in a pretty complicated section of it, and chapter 11 is a real turning point, and we'll talk about that quite a bit um, a little bit later on in the lesson. Let me catch you up. I'm not going to catch you all the way up, but I'm going to go back a couple of chapters. We've been working through. There are a couple of different series of events that take place in Revelation. There's three groups. There's a group of seals where Jesus is breaking these seals and these things start to happen. The second set of event is trumpets, which are much more intensified than the seals. Ecological catastrophes, a bunch of really crazy stuff happening on earth. And then the fifth and the sixth trumpet are even more intense, okay? And that's where we start to see these curses that God has put on non-believers, people who have denied him and who oppose him on the earth. And he's not doing this because he hates them. He's doing it so he can get their attention and hopefully they will turn around in kind of this last ditch effort to, to, to repent and ask for forgiveness. We, we take a break from these sets of events in chapter 10. John, we have him not from an earthly standpoint, but from a, uh, I'm sorry, not from a heavenly standpoint, but from an earthly standpoint. John tells us that he sees an angel come down. He sees this angel put one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, and this angel has a scroll. And we talked about last week what this scroll represents. It's different from the scroll we talked about in chapter five. This is a scroll that is specifically for John, and it represents his responsibility. We talked about that all of us have a scroll. All of us have a responsibility that we are to accept from God and that this responsibility is bittersweet. It's sweet in the fact that it's nice to be in God's will and doing what God wants us to do. It is bitter in the fact that sometimes being a Christian is difficult. Sometimes it's very, very hard, okay? Now, chapter 11, like I said, there's a big turning point in chapter 11, the end of, of kind of the world and life as we know it happens at the end of chapter 11, but we still have about half of Revelation to cover. So how does that work, right? I'll get to that and I'll explain that a little bit towards the end, okay? So everything I'm going to say today in a very broken, raspy voice is not in your notes because I couldn't fit it all in your notes, but everything will be on the screens. If you have the Experience Community app, click on service times and sermon notes, and I think there's a little bit more in there, including the, the, the scripture we'll be reading today, okay? So if you have a Bible, we're in the very last book of the Bible, we're in chapter 11, and we're gonna be talking about two witnesses today. Now, 
Here's, what's, here's what else is interesting about chapter 11. There's a lot of different ways one can go with chapter 11, and there's no wrong way necessarily, but how we look at chapter 11 greatly determines how we look at the entire book of Revelation, okay? So it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. There's no right or wrong, but it will change the way you view Jesus' return, okay? All right? So I'm going to periodically cough and sound really funny today, but we're going to work through these notes, and hopefully uh, it'll, it'll make sense and um, hopefully you'll enjoy these chapters, okay, or this chapter. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Father, we thank you, Lord. God, please keep your hand on me today, Lord. Just keep your hand on my chest and my throat, Lord, and help me to make sense today, God, and uh, Lord, don't, like the, don't let the day quill impair my ability to teach this morning. Lord, we pray, God, that you touch everyone in this room, Lord. Help us, God, not just to hear your word, but help us pull out what's most important and help us, Lord, apply this, God, to our daily lives. And we just pray, Lord, that, that you are honored by what we do today. And we pray that everyone who hears your word today is blessed, God, and encouraged. Lord, we pray for every church in our city. Pray for all the great nonprofits that we work with, Lord, specifically Salvation Army that we're working with this month, God. And we pray that they are blessed and that our city is blessed by what they do, Lord. We love you. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so we ended chapter 10. John takes this little scroll, he eats it, not literally, that's a metaphor, right? He eats this scroll, he accepts his responsibility, and now as he's on earth, the, the, the scene is going to shift, okay? And this is where we pick up in chapter 11, all right? Here we go. Then I was given a measuring reed like a rod, and with these words, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there but exclude the courtyard outside of the temple. Don't measure it because it's given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Already you guys are like, what in the heck is this? So there's a ton of debate about this chapter. Like I said, the two kind of main ways we can go with this chapter is we can go a more literal route or we can go a more figurative route or we can kind of blend the two, which is what I kind of personally do, is there's some things that are literal, and I think there are some things that are figurative. Like I said, there's no right or wrong in this, but how we view the different things in chapter 11 will change how we view the second coming of Christ. Let me pause here. I didn't say this in any of the other services. Now, the point isn't, when is Jesus coming back? That's not the point. The point is, are you ready for that? So whether it's before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation, like I believe, it doesn't matter. It just matters if you're ready for it. You pre-tribulation people, I hope you're right, and I hope I'm wrong. I don't think I am, but I hope you're right, and I hope I'm wrong, okay? But I just wanted to throw that in there. So John is still on earth, okay? But the scene has shifted. Now he's not looking at the sea and the land. He is looking at a temple, and he is giving a measuring rod, and he's told by this angel, measure the temple of God, measure the altar, and measure how many people, count how many people are worshiping in this temple. Now, if we take this temple literally, that leads a lot of Christians to believe that before Jesus comes back, there will be a literal temple built back in Jerusalem. They believe that'll be where the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim mosque right now in Jerusalem, they believe that will be torn down and another temple to the true God will be built there. If you take this figuratively, you don't think of the temple as a building, you think of it in the New Testament context of the temple is 
us. So we are going to be rebuilt back, the, the people of God, if you will. That's the figurative way of looking at this temple. So John received a reed to measure this temple. Now, this represents the fact that John is told to count how many Christians there will be during the time of the Great Tribulation. Now, if you've not been here, the Great Tribulation is the last seven years of kind of life as we know it. There will be a lot of turmoil. There will be a lot of awful things that take place. That's what we've been covering. If you've been coming to the, the study, we've been doing a revelation. Now, the reason John is told to measure just the inner court and not to worry about the outer court is because the outer court was for everybody. The inner court of the, of the temple in the Old Testament was reserved for genuine believers of God. Let me show you kind of an artist rendition of this so you kind of get an idea of what John's thinking about right here. This big area outside of the main part of the temple, anyone could walk around in this area. Didn't matter if you were a believer or a non-believer, but the inner courts of the temple only true believers of God could hang out in these inner courts, okay? So this angel says to John, I just want you to count what's on the inside, the inner court. Don't worry about the outer court. The reason why he said not to count the outer courts is so the outer courts will be given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for three and a half years. This is gonna be very, very important as we go on. This idea of 42 months or three and a half years or 1260 days that we'll also read. Now, if you take this literally, the holy city that it's referring to is going to literally be Jerusalem. If you take it figuratively, these nations, these people who oppose God will stomp or trample on Christianity as a whole, okay? So the nations refers to people that oppose God, and they are going to trample on either literally Jerusalem or figuratively all the people of God, Christians. Now, if you take that literally, you have some historical backing for that. Jerusalem had been trampled before, once by the Syrians, about, about 200 years uh, uh, prior to when, when John was writing this, and once in about 70 AD by the Romans. So Jerusalem had been trampled before, so it's not outside of the scope of possibility that this would happen again. So God, though, if it's a figurative approach, God is going to protect Christians during this time of trampling, this 42 months of intense persecution. Now, when I say protect us, the Bible nowhere says that we will be protected physically. We will be protected spiritually during this time. The only thing physically that we're promised protection from is God's wrath. That's because Christians don't make God angry if they're following him. Therefore, we're not going to experience God's wrath. Non-believers will experience God's wrath, okay? So during this time, this 36 months, or I'm sorry, this uh, three and a half years, there's gonna be two witnesses that are gonna show up and they're gonna start to preach the gospel on a global scale. Okay, here we go. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. There are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky 
so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. So like I said, during this last three and a half years, either two men or this idea, let me, let me, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Two witnesses are gonna show up and they're gonna proclaim the gospel. Now there are three ways that people interpret these two witnesses. Either it's two literal men that are gonna show up and they're gonna prophesy and they're gonna teach and the whole entire world is gonna hear them. Now some people believe, and I'll get, I'll get to this in a minute, that these are historical prophets that have come back. Other people believe they're not historical prophets, but they're new prophets that are gonna come and they're gonna teach on a global scale. Other people think this is a metaphor, that the two witnesses are the Old Testament and the New Testament. So basically the word of God is the, are these two witnesses. Another notion that a lot of people have is maybe that it's not two men, but it's two churches, or it's a portion of Christianity, okay? So there's a couple of different ways of looking at this. Now, when it comes to the number two and two witnesses, this is something we see all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, legally, in a court of law, there had to be two witnesses to a crime. Or if, if I accused you of something, I had to have someone else that could also confirm that they saw you do something or it would be disregarded legally. In the New Testament, when Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them two by two because two people confirm the truth. Not only that, the word witness can be translated as martyr. We actually get the word martyr from the Greek word that is used for witness. And we're gonna see that these two witnesses, whoever they are, they're going to be witnesses in the truest sense of the word. They're going to become martyrs for their faith. Okay, so let's look at both angles, okay? And again, there's no right or wrong on this. Let's first look at the figurative approach to these two witnesses. If you're looking at the two witnesses figuratively, if you remember when we were in the first three chapters of Revelation, we talked about seven churches. Of those seven churches, only two of them had God's full approval, if you remember that. So some people are led to believe that these are not two individuals, but these are two churches, or at least a portion of Christianity that is going to teach, and the whole world is going to hear it during these 42 months. The fact that the word lampstand is used in verse 4 gives some validity to that, because the word lampstand in the first three chapters of Revelation was talking about churches, not people, okay? Not individuals. Now let's look at the other approach. What if it's literally two men? The fact that it uses the words olive branches, it calls these men's, these men, men's, these men olive branches, and it says that they're from lampstands, that would support that this could possibly be two pastors. Because it says in Zechariah chapter four that, that olive branches give light to lampstands, just like a pastor leads a church. So possibly this could be two pastors that represent two congregations. It doesn't matter. Whoever these two witnesses are, they're going to walk in humility. It says they're dressed in sackcloth. And they're going to walk with extreme spiritual power. Now, how do we know that? Well, it says first that when these men speak, fire is going to come out of their mouths. Now, that is not a literal thing. 
There's no record of fire coming out of people's mouths. This isn't like a Harry Potter translation of the Bible or anything like that. The ministry of these men of these churches will be so powerful with the people that they oppose that it says fire will consume their enemies. Now, what does that mean? That's probably a reference to people rejecting the gospel that comes out of their mouth. That word consume that it uses in this translation can literally be translated to eaten down. What that means, and this isn't just for the end times, it's for all of us. Whoever rejects the gospel that comes out of people's mouths, the true gospel, will eventually be consumed by fire. It's referring to hell. So whenever we hear the truth and we reject the truth, we will eventually be consumed by fire. That's what that's referring to. It also says that these two people, these two men, will have the ability to inflict plagues on the world. Now, this is why a lot of people believe this is either Elijah or Moses or possibly even Enoch from the Old Testament because Enoch never died, that they believe that as this, these, these, one of these or two of these men come back to the earth to, to be prophets one more time. Now, I think that's highly unlikely it's doubtful that that's the thing, but whoever these two men are, they're going to have similar powers of Elijah to bring down fire like Moses to inflict plagues on the world around them. They will have the same kind of power as the prophets from the Old Testament, okay? So they're going to do this for three and a half years, and they're going to, they're going to preach, and it even says that the, the people are going to look at it as tormenting the people of the earth, but they're not tormenting the people of the earth. They're trying to get their attention, okay? Now, here's what happens. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the people, tribe, nation, and languages uh, will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Now, if you were here for chapter 10, we talked about this bittersweet calling of doing what God wants us to do. The sweet part is, for 42 months, the gospel that these men are going to be sharing is going to rock the world. It's going to have a huge impact on the world. The bitter part of that is at the end of what God has called them to do, this beast that comes up from the abyss is going to wage war on these two witnesses and is going to kill them. Now, what we see here is important at the first part of this part that I read. We see that they complete their testimony. They do what God wants them to do. That shows us that God is sovereign during all this. Even though these men die, they have accomplished everything that God wants them to accomplish. The other thing we see in this is that we have to remember that even in the face of death, we must share the truth. Even when people make war against us, we must do what God has called us to do. Now, here we start to talk about the beast. I think this is my first, if I recall correctly, the first time that we've talked about the Antichrist. Now, there are two beasts that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. One is from the sea, 
and one is from the earth or from the land. Now, you have to use your imagination on this. Think of a really corrupt political leader. Anyways, <laughs> think one day that a really corrupt political leader will raise up, will rise up, and will actually be an antichrist and will make war against the witnesses and eventually kill them. We'll eventually get to the other beast. One is going to be a political leader. One is going to be a corrupt religious leader. If we take the figurative approach, if these witnesses are not two individuals but a large group of people, this means that a large group of people are going to be slaughtered by this antichrist, by this political leader all over the world, okay? Now, when it says that their bodies will be on Main Street, from the figurative approach, this means Christians will be slaughtered all over the earth in all kinds of different cities. From the literal approach, it'll just be two men who are killed in a city that the Bible calls the New Babylon. Now, for three and a half days, the world will watch this, and they will celebrate this, and they will send gifts to each other, and they will refuse to bury these men out of a sign of disrespect. The world hates these two men. And so they see their dead bodies in the street, and they celebrate this for a time. Now, the location of this city is a source of debate. It says that this happens in a great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. We know from the Old Testament that Sodom represents immorality. It represents sexual immorality in particular. We also know from the Old Testament that Egypt represents spiritual bondage or slavery. So wherever this city is, it is immoral, it is spiritually oppressive, and, and, and if we're looking at it as a figurative thing, like it's not just one city, but an idea, it represents all culture that oppresses and opposes the things of God. Now, some people think they've got it figured out. We know what city it is. It's Jerusalem because it's the city where Jesus was crucified. It is not Jerusalem. Whenever you say this, Jerusalem has never been known as Sodom or Egypt. It's a holy city. It's a good city. And so when it says that they have killed Jesus in this city, they're not, it's a metaphor. It means that they are killing Christianity or they are against the teachings of Jesus in this city. It's not literally Jerusalem, okay? Now, wherever this city is, this new Babylon, it's going to be reminiscent of an Old Testament city called Babylon. Now, if you've never heard of Babylon, Babylon is kind of an uh, it's kind of a reoccurring bad guy in the Old Testament, this city. It represents a, a people that, that are evil. It represents a, a culture that oppresses God's people and the things of God. So in the future, and I put a question mark because this city may already exist, but sometime in the future, there will be this city that is the epicenter of culture. It is the epicenter of entertainment. It is the epicenter of innovation and prog progress but it will represent all the things that are antithetical to the things of God. Now, whether it's a literal city or whether it's an idea, it's gonna be extremely influential and it will be very anti-Jesus, okay? All right. So after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered into these men and they stood in their, on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, 
come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell, and a thousand people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Take note, the third woe is coming. Now the witnesses that have been dead in the streets for three and a half days as people have been celebrating, we start to learn that the celebration was premature because it says the breath of life of God enters back into these men. They rise from the dead. They stand on their feet. Now, if we take the metaphorical or figurative approach to these witnesses, this is where we get the idea of a mid-tribulation rapture. Some people think this is halfway through the seven years. Okay, now I don't believe that, and I'll show you that here in a second. But when you have friends or if you're talking about Revelation and they think the Christians go halfway through it and then we're raptured up, this is where they get that idea, okay? Chapter 11. They think this isn't just two men. This is all Christians coming back and going up to heaven. Another view that people have that I, that I also don't personally agree with is they believe there's kind of two raptures. All the martyrs for Jesus, they get risen first and they kind of get this VIP rapture, and then everyone else gets to go after that. Now, again, I do not personally believe this. I believe that these are two literal men who are killed, resurrected by God. Their enemies watch them, and it strikes fear in the world because these men are resurrected from the grave, and the whole world sees it. Now, after that, there's a loud voice from heaven that tells the men to come up here after they are resurrected. As they are ascending, it says that there is a violent earthquake, which is very similar to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus when there was a violent earthquake. But this earthquake will destroy a tenth of the city, and 7,000 people will be killed in this city. Again, there was about 3,000 that died when, in, in the Twin Towers that got hit. Remember how catastrophic that was, more than twice that will die in this city during this time. Now, some people believe this is the exact same earthquake as chapter 16, but again, we'll get to that later, okay? Now, it says the people that survive this earthquake give glory to God. Now, this is probably not a good thing. This is probably not them changing because this is gonna be the end. So this is probably not them changing and giving their lives to Jesus. This is probably referring to Philippians chapter two when it says every knee shall bow. Now, we need to know as Christians, every knee will bow, either voluntarily or involuntarily. I believe this is involuntarily. People are scared of what is happening, so they hit their knees. Okay, now, if you haven't been confused yet, I'm going to confuse you here. Now, most people think when they just casually read the book of Revelation that we're only halfway through the Great Tribulation. We're not. We're about to see that the great tribulation has come to an end. So what we've covered so far has been a seven-year span. There's an angel that says to us that the end will come when the seventh trumpet blows. So we know that when the seventh trumpet blows, it's done. Jesus is coming back, and we're about to enter into a different stage of, of how humanity exists, okay? So here's the thing. I got a chart for you. This is not on your notes, but this is very, very important. What I just read to you, 
up through verse 14 of chapter 11. That is the seven-year span. So if you start at chapter 6 of Revelation and read to verse 11, 14, that is seven years. That is the great tribulation told from a heavenly perspective. John is up here telling you what's going to happen during seven years, okay? Now, what I'm about to read you is chronologically out of order. How dare you, Corey? There are other, I don't know if you know this, the Bible in itself is not chronologically in the, in the right order. So anyways, so this part that I'm about to read you is chronologically out of order. We should take 11 verses 15 through 19, pull it out, and move it to the end of chapter 18. And when we read the book of Revelation like this, it makes tremendous sense. So verses 6, chapter 6, through verses 11, 14, is seven years told from up here. When we get into chapters 12 through 18, it's the same seven years, but it's told from an earthly perspective. Same thing, but it's told from here. And then if we take out this part that I'm about to read and stick it at the end of chapter 18, that is when the end takes place and chapters 19 through 22 show us what eternity is going to look like, okay? Now, does that make sense to everybody? If you read, no one answered. If you read Revelation like this, it makes unbelievable sense, okay? You'll be shocked at how many answers that it gives you, all right? So, I'm going to read, and this is the future, the distant future, and I'm going to read you of what it's going to look like when we get into chapters 19 and beyond, okay? Here we go. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. He will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great, and the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Let me pause there for a second. That is very obviously the end, very obviously the end. He just says, I'm going to destroy those who destroy the earth. Judgment has come. This is the end, okay? Let me read a little bit more. Then the temple of God in heaven has opened, and the ark of the covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, an earthquake and severe hail. Now in verse 14, whenever the Bible says take note, you should probably take note. You should probably pay attention there. So the mighty angel proclaimed that the seventh trumpet would signal the end of kind of life on earth as we know it. But we still have half of the, bo uh, of the book of Revelation to study. So how does this work? I already showed you, right? But trumpets can signify battle. And what this seventh trumpet does is it signifies that the last battle of good and evil is about to take place. We'll get to that later. Now, if you've been with me for any length of time, 
These, these three different series of events, the seals, trumpets, and bowls, we talked about, there's a hypothesis that the last event in each series, the seventh event, is the same. That makes tremendous amount of sense when we read about the seventh trumpet. If you read chapters 12 through 18 alongside what we've covered today, the story gets so much more clear. And when we read about the seventh bowl in chapter 16, it's just like the seventh trumpet and it's just like the seventh seal. It makes tremendous amounts of sense. So in this last part of chapter 11, we see John is in heaven, right? Kind of in a heavenly vantage point. But when we get into chapter 12, we're back on an earthly vantage point. Just like I said before, chapter 6 through 11 is the seven years from up here. GT, Great Tribulation. That's me being super lazy, right? And then chapters 12 through 18 is the Great Tribulation, but from down here. It's the exact same story told from two different perspectives. So in this part that we just read, John records a roar of praise that happens as heaven, uh, uh, he, he's from, he's in, he's in, he hears this, I'm sorry, this praise from heaven as the time on earth has run its course. Now the first line of, of this praise that we hear from heaven shows that the ownership of the earth is about to change hands. Now, we always say, the Bible alludes to, that the earth is, it, it, that it belongs to the devil for a certain amount of time. I put that in quotations because God always has owned the earth. But there has been this temporary time where it looks like the devil has reign over the earth. But what we see here is that reign is coming to an end. And then the second line shows that when it does switch hands back to Jesus Christ, that it is going to be a permanent thing. He is going to reign forever and ever and ever. So in light of this, the 24 elders from chapter four that are around the throne are no longer seated on their thrones, they're face first. And they're worshiping God because evil is about to be judged, because good is about to be rewarded, because the bowls of God's wrath are going to be poured out on the people who have destroyed the earth and who people have done evil things on the earth. And, and the seals and the trumpets, they take years to unfold. The bowls are gonna come out really, really quick and they're gonna do a lot of damage very, very rapidly. And we'll get to those in chapter 16, okay? Now, here's something that's very, very fascinating. At the very end of this chapter, it says that the temple of God opens up, heaven opens up, and we see something very interesting. We see the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you're not familiar with what that is, it's in the, it's in the Old Testament. A lot of references to the Ark, right? So historically, the Ark of the Covenant that belonged to the Jewish people disappeared in 586 B.C., never to be seen again. I know you guys are like, no, the Germans have it, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark. No, it hasn't been seen since 586 BC. Now, what the Ark of the Covenant represents in the Old Testament is it represents not only the Spirit of God and the power of God, it represents the promise of God. It is a covenant. It is a promise. So what we see at the very end of chapter 11, now hold on for a second, this is gonna make sense. What we see at the end of chapter 11 is God opens up heaven and he shows us a symbol of his promise. What that does 
is we're going to learn all the things that are incomprehensible. What that means is it represents everything that has been lost, everything that has been stolen, everything that has been taken from us. God remembers it and he's gonna give it back. That's what that represents at the end of chapter 11. So let me see if I can connect the dots here a little bit. The same guy that wrote the book of Revelation wrote the gospel of John, right? His name's John. In chapter 10, verse 10 of John, he says that the devil comes for one purpose, to steal, kill, destroy. That's what the devil does. Now, the devil does this in a couple of different ways, how he accomplishes it. He accomplishes it one way by the mistakes we make. We do stupid things, we sin, we make stupid choices, and because of those bad choices, we lose things. We lose confidence, we lose joy, sometimes we lose literal possessions, we lose relationships. Another way that the devil steals and kills and destroys are things that are done to us. Other people sin, other people commit abuses, other people hurt us, and it robs us of different things. And where we find ourselves as Christians is we say, God, when will your promises be restored? God, when will I have my contentment back? When will I have my peace back? Just like the Ark of the Covenant that was stolen from the Jews. God, do you remember that something has been stolen from us? When will we get this promise back? When will we get these things that have been taken from us? When will they be returned to us? So if you don't know this yet about being a Christian, let me just go ahead and burst your bubble. One of the hardest things about being a believer in Jesus Christ is trusting God's timing. <laughs> All the amens, right? Any of you who've been a Christian for any length of time, you know this. It is very, very hard to trust God. God, when is this going to happen? But God's time is always perfect. Now let me show you this. Let me get a little charismatic on you here for a second. God knows that all of you in this room have lost things. God knows that all of you have made mistakes. God knows that all of you have struggled with anxiety and fear. God knows that all of you have struggled with confidence issues and worth issues. God knows that all of you in this room have been taken advantage of, that you've been abused in some way, that things have been stolen from you. What the end of Revelation shows us and why it is so encouraging is one, the end of Revelation shows us that the time of the thief is getting short. The time when things will be taken from us, the time when we struggle with fear, with doubt, with self-esteem, with self-worth, the time of Satan stealing, killing, and destroying, every single day that passes, the devil's time is getting shorter and shorter. The other thing that it reminds us is, not only is Satan's time drawing to a close, but the rightful king will not only come back and claim what is his, he will give you back what is yours. That one day God will come back and say, you thought that I forgot about this promise that I made you, but let me open up heaven and let me show you that everything that has been taken and robbed from you is still preserved and I'm gonna give it back. Now listen. I don't know what that means to you guys in this room. 
I don't know if there's anyone in this room who has, who has lost relationships, even marriages, those of you who have lost loved ones, those of you who have lost homes or jobs because of things you've done. And we often ask ourselves, once we become a Christian and have a relationship with Christ, God, are you ever going to build me back? Are you ever going to give me back the things that I screwed up? The end of Revelation 11 is God is saying, yes. There's going to come a time when there's not going to be any more tears. There's not going to be any more darkness. There's not going to be any more mistakes. There's not going to be any more sin or broken relationships or hurt. Those things will be gone. The old things will pass away, the Bible says. And then there's a bunch of you in this room who you've been abused. You've been hurt. You've been taken advantage of. You've been lied to. You've been abandoned. And at the end of Revelation 11, God also reminds you that one day, you're going to have a perfect residence with God where all of your questions are going to be answered, where everything that was taken from you is going to be given back. Everything is going to be restored. I don't know who that's for today. Maybe it's just for me. I have abandonment issues, right? My dad left me. I feel those things. But I think there's probably a couple of other people in this room who need to hear that God has not forgotten about you. That everything that you think evil has taken, God says, just wait. At the proper time, I'm gonna give it all back. And not just give it all back, it's gonna be better than you could ever imagine. If you will just be faithful, if you will just hold on to the end, one day God is going to open up the most holy places, right? The inner sanctuary of the temple was called the Holy of Holies, where no one could go. So eventually God's going to open that up and say, come on, the most intimate relationship you can ever have with God, and he's going to restore everything, everything back to us. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you're in this room and maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you're a new Christian but you got a lot of questions, Dave is up here to my right, your left. He's wearing a T-shirt. If you have any questions, come up and ask Dave. He doesn't know everything, but he, he knows how to plug you in. He knows how to answer theological questions. He can help you kind of take your next step. Come up here and talk to Dave. If you're in this room, and you need prayer for anything. Let's go back to the two witnesses for a second. The Bible says we're any two or more gathered together in my name. God is right there. So what happens is, is groups attract the Holy Spirit. If you need prayer for anything, don't go with that alone. Come up here, find one of these men or women, and just say, hey, will you join with me in prayer? And they will. And wherever two or more are gathered, the Holy Spirit is right there. Find someone to pray with you. Why not? The last thing is there is communion all the way around this room. Wherever there's a lamp on a table, there's, there's communion. There's the bread and there's the wine. And that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I think some of you need to be reminded of this. Those of you who think that God has forgotten or that God is not going to fulfill his promises, that his promises are void or shallow, 
God made a covenant based on his own son's death. I don't know if anyone in this room would give their only child for a bunch of people who are not living right, but God did that. That shows us that his promise has substance, that he will fulfill his promise, that he's good, that everything that has been robbed, stolen, killed, destroyed in our lives, that God will give those things back to us and he promises us by his son's blood. Everyone in this room is welcome to take the communion and that helps remind us that God is faithful. The only thing we have to do before we take that is we have to ask God to forgive us of our sins. I wanna pray for you. God, Lord, we love you. Anyone in this room, Lord Jesus, who feels like they have screwed up to the point to where they'll never get back what they've lost, anyone in this room who's been abused or taken advantage of or lied to or cheated, God, we pray, Lord, that you remind them today that you have not forgotten. Lord, remind them today that in heaven you hold everything they need that one day you're gonna answer every question. You're gonna fulfill every request, God. You're gonna give us everything, Lord. We love you, God, and we thank you. And I pray blessings over all our brothers and sisters in this room today, God. Lord, that you strengthen us, and Lord, let us hold on until the end where we know we're gonna be rewarded properly, Lord. We love you, and we thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.